This is Car Expert. For really people that enjoy driving and really need an SUV, they can't manage a 911 or a Cayman, whatever. This is the closest you're going to get to a 911. If the Model Y was 10 or 15 grand more expensive, you probably wouldn't consider it. As a value proposition, it's what wins it at the moment. Peugeot and Citroen, their EV or lack thereof offering in Australia is quite far behind the times and that probably reflects where the French brands stand in this particular market. Tony Crawford, hello. Mandy, how are you? We're talking cars and we freaking love it. Absolutely. Um, I couldn't think of any any other better place to be right now. (laughs) Mike Costello, hello. I could think of a better place to be because I'm sitting in the boardroom and it's dark and windy outside. So if I could be recording this on a nice beach somewhere, the subject matter is great, but the location, not so much. (laughs) Um, What have you been up to? What have you been driving, Crawford? Uh, I'm in a Maserati, uh, Maserati Ghibli Modena, and this actually might be my last Ghibli review for quite a few years if they don't end up bringing the Ghibli name back. They're going to ditch it, and they're going to ditch it in favour of a single. They're only going to have one car. So while they have the Ghibli now and the Quattroporte, they're going to roll it all into one, and it'll be uh, a new platform. And it'll be smaller than the current Quattroporte, but called the Quattroporte. So work that one out. Um, and don't forget, the Ghibli started life in 67 as a, as a two-door Grand Tourer, a beautiful-looking Grand Tourer designed by Gigaro. And, um, and now we're suddenly in a four-door sedan, and that's going to be ditched um, because they're, they're launching a new SUV, a small SUV like Macan called the Grigali, Grigali and it looks fab- fabulous, actually. And it's much cheaper than any Maserati has ever been. So anyway, we can talk about that another time. But yeah, I'm, this could be a sad moment. The, I'm driving the last Ghibli that may never come back, or as Moko said, it might come back. Who knows? Mm, we'll wait and see. Um, now, this pricked my ears, Moko. I don't know a lot about this because when you started saying, oh, it's this and that, I'm like, no, 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 I want to know more in a second. Um, the Ford Heritage Vault, what have you been doing with this? <laughs> Yeah, so the Ford Heritage Vault, it's, 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 it's sort of probably what you imagine it to be. Um, some archivists that are employed by Ford have been beavering away deep in the depths of Dearborn, finding all this old paraphernalia about cars, brochures and pictures and all sorts of stuff from 1903 to 2003, so the first 100 years of Ford's history. Ford has published this in a publicly accessible, completely free of charge database. There are more than 5,000 photos and brochures spanning that 100-year period of time. And I know what you're thinking. The first thing I went on there, I thought, is this a bloody American-only thing? I type in Falcon and lo and behold, no. here I am looking at a 1983 Falcon panel van brochure. Now, mm. I'm not a particularly big car nerd for old Fords, but I appreciate that Ford, you know, I guess values its history enough to do something like this. Is the AU in there? No, because, uh, well, actually, I think there's a brief amount in there, but it's definitely <laughs> focused more on earlier iterations. There's, but that being said, Ford says it's going to pad this out with more and more stuff constantly. So I suspect you will start to see more and more of the uh, the Aussie stuff that might have sort of fallen, you know, by the wayside a little bit. Um, Ford does consider it the American auto industry's most comprehensive online database, and I'm not really in a position to argue with it because it's bloody comprehensive. Uh, is um, there like Mustang headings? Is there like a special heading? for Mustang? 
There is. So it's it's divided by model, and you can also search by year. You can search by color. You can do all sorts of cool searching. Uh, 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 basically, you know, you can carve it up any which way you like. Um, but it's so cool to look at, you know, old advertisements and brochures for Fords from the 60s and 70s, and you can see how, let's be honest, how technologically inferior older cars were compared to new ones today. You know, 98-kilowatt, four-liter inline six engines. I mean... <laughs> We romanticize old cars sometimes, don't we? But sometimes we forget that, you know, new ones are demonstrably superior. But, you know, Ford, yes, it closed its plant here and, and yes, it closed another plant this week in or announced it was closing another plant in Germany. And, you know, the the, the, the requirements of being a, a functioning solvent business sometimes dictate that. But at least it celebrates its history and, and, and isn't sort of afraid or ashamed to run from what it's been. And if you are a car fan, particularly a Blue Oval fan, go to the website, the Ford Heritage Vault, and lose yourself for a few hours and who knows when you'll come back for air. Don't forget, the Yanks had electric windows 20 years before we got them. Like, <laughs> it was just standard fare over there, but it was a luxury item in Australia, I can tell you. Mate, I wish we went back to windy windows. I'm yeah. a basic creature. Them. Well, it cost you a lot less to repair. Mate, yeah. windy windows, manual gearboxes, buttons and switches instead of screens. But then again, I like winding watches rather than Apple watches, so I'm a bit of a bit no, of an antiquated I character. Hate Apple watches, mate. <laughs> so the only value of them is you can find your phone when you lose it. That's about it. <laughs> That's really cool, Michael. The fact that it's there free of charge, it would have taken probably years to get that uh, that together. So uh, awesome stuff by Ford. I can think of some car journos. Um, Byron Matthew Darkus from, from Wheels comes to mind who would lose themselves for 24 straight hours in his database. So, yeah, it's <laughs> obviously going to raise some eyebrows. And, Michael, okay, did you say how we how people can access it? Yeah, just Google Ford Heritage Vault. takes you straight there. Um and basically, it's a pretty self-explanatory site um, full of different search boxes by different categories. And in a couple of minutes, you can find whatever you want. I found it pretty user-friendly. I, I had a bit of a play around with it before I wrote the story. And um, yeah, I, I, it, funnily enough, just for a personal anecdote, my um, as a kid, my mum uh, towed horse floats everywhere and she had a, uh, a 1993 Falcon Longreach manual that did about 400,000 Ks, towing floats everywhere. I have visceral memories of that car, riding in the back of it to, to school in the mornings and doing long weekend trips in it and going and actually having a look at the original brochure and marketing collateral for that car was quite, I wouldn't say emotional, but it, it definitely gave me a real kind of retro walk back through my past. So if you've got a connection to Ford, I really encourage you to go and have a look. Did you have the wood panelling on those? <laughs> oh, my God. No, but, but I it, think it was actually wood. It was fibreglass, wasn't it? It actually was a very rare purple, 1993 purple Falcon Longreach with a five-speed manual gearbox, oh, wow. which I believe was the only one of its kind. And I wish wow. mum never sold it because I would have had the bloody thing and I could have sold it for 100 grand, but there wow. you go. <laughs> to talk this week's news, we bring back Jack Quick. Hello, Jack. Hey, Mandy, how are you? Very good, thank you. I'm actually, uh, can't wait to talk about this because I've got to love a BMW wagon. The 2023 M3 Touring has been revealed and is it coming here? 
Um, yes, spoilers, it is. <laughs> Great. <laughs> so, yes, the M3, BMW M3 Touring, we've been talking about it for a very, very long time, and I've written countless uh, stories on spied prototypes, and there's been a really long um, uh, teaser campaign. We've been talking about it for ages, as I just said, and it is coming to Australia um, in the first quarter of 2023, so not too long, really. And um, so at this stage, we don't know local pricing and specifications, but it is going to be making a debut at the 2022 Goodwood Festival of Speed, which is uh, once this podcast goes live, um, just gone. So you would have already seen it. <laughs> um, so it's very cool. And um, powering this M3 Touring is a three-liter twin-turbo inline six-cylinder, um, same engine from the, the M3 and M4 competition, producing a total of 375 kilowatts of power and 650 newton meters of talk which is a lot sweet <laughs> and um so the m3 touring is only going to come with an eight-speed automatic and it's going to have an x drive um all-wheel drive system with a an active rear differential um, and a few interesting features that I quite find uh, find interesting with the M3 Touring is that it has a separately opening uh, rear glass uh, rear glass uh, in the tailgate, which is a feature that is shared um, among other normal three series um, wagons. So the, the the glass opens separately from the actual bodywork. Yes, yeah, so like a, that's exactly right. So like an old school think of like I. I automatically think of like a territory or like yeah. um, where like uh, an old old school four wheel drive where the, the glass um, opens separately to the actual tailgate itself. And I wasn't expecting to see that kind of feature um, in a high performance wagon, which is insanely cool. One other quick feature as well is there's these special um, anti-slip rails that uh, are said to, I haven't actually seen footage of this yet, but that apparently they raise from the boot floor and in one, once they raise, it stops items in the boot from bouncing around while you're driving fast. So it sounds like a weapon and it sounds super duper cool. So any BMW tragic will know, Jack, and, and I'm sure you're one of us, that, <laughs> you know, People have been asking forever, where the hell is the M3 wagon? You've had M3 coupes and convertibles now called M4. M3 sedan is going back multiple generations now. Why no wagon? Croft, you recently wrote a great story from some time you spent over in Germany talking to some real bigwigs at BMW who explained why they've only just now made an M3 touring wagon. I'm going to give you two minutes and I'm going to time you. Give us a breakdown. <laughs> Why has it taken so long until 2022 for this amazing car to arrive? Okay, they did build one. They did build a concept called the M3 concept. I think it was 1990 or 1999. You'll have to check that on my story. Um, but they built one on the E46 platform and it looked frigging amazing. But for some reason... The, uh, the the powers that be at BMW M in the day thought that it's only a European concept. It won't sell outside Europe because wagons just weren't that popular compared to Europe. So that's why they actually never went ahead and built a production series version of this. So that's why this thing is so amazingly uh, cool. I think it'll sell out in no time. We are getting it. I'm desperate to order one in purple or violet, uh, something they call it. I've just looked it up, the colour up, and I desperately want one because this car is apparently doing 730s around the Nürburgring. That's 15 seconds faster than an E63 S wagon. 
Um, so you're talking about a very quick car. I believe they've over-engineered this vehicle because they want it to keep going. It'll only keep going if it sells. So it's a really important vehicle for enthusiasts like us that want to get low down with a wagon, you know, hardcore M3, M4 uh, concept, if you like, in terms of the power and, and torque and be able to carry bikes and boards and all that stuff. So, yeah, it's got to sell or it'll be taken away and it'll be a very limited edition. There are two amazing things about this before we move on. One, it's not another bloody SUV, and I'm not opposed to SUVs, but it is nice to see an M performance car that isn't an SUV. And second of all, finally, the Audi RS4 Avant, one of the most iconic cars on sale, finally has some proper competition. It's not just the Ingolstadt brand playing in that market anymore. I know the C63 wagon is a thing, but Audi is so synonymous with performance wagons, and it's amazing to see the Bavarians have finally come to the table with their own. But we can't talk about the M3 all day, can we? Jack, what else have we got? <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly right, Mike. Uh, next up we have is Peugeot has revealed this car seemingly out of nowhere. It's uh, this strange yet really cool-looking SUV called the 408, and I can confirm that it is coming to Australia. We don't know when exactly. Given current wait lists, it could be 2026 for all we know, <laughs> but let's just say. It does look unreal. <laughs> so yes, yeah, the Peugeot R four four eight is going to be coming in uh, at launch. Three different powertrain options globally. That is, it's going to come with one petrol and then two plug-in hybrid options, um, ranging in different uh, power uh, power outputs. And there's also going to be an EV version coming very soon. And um, so if you think about this four hundred eight, I suppose you have mightn't have seen it yet, but it slots in between um, the three hundred eight wagon and the five hundred eight liftback in terms of length. So if you picture that, it's relatively long, but it's kind of lifted, and I think it looks really interesting. It has some very cool angles and some really cool um, uh, like cutouts at the front and the rear and the side. But my favourite feature are the really cool geometric twenty inch alloy wheels. They have this like. They just cut through. That it looks like they shouldn't work, but obviously they do. It looks like something you'd see in a concept car, but it, this is meant to be the production car. And um, so yeah, we'll just have to wait and see for some more local details around when to expect this Peugeot 408. What powertrains is going to get? What is going to cost? We don't know any of that just yet. But um, I'm very excited. And do you think this car looks cool? Or mine is crazy. I think this car looks sensational. What I, what I love about it is that the French brands have always been great at defying traditional vehicle segmentation. Um, Citroen has been the king of it for a long time, but Peugeot, uh, I love it when Peugeot is not conventional, when Peugeot takes a bit of a risk, does something different. We've got Volkswagen for, you know, boring European sensible cars. We don't need Peugeot to do that too. Um, I also love the fact that this car has got a night vision system that uses thermal imaging tech to scan the road ahead, um, which I just think is Again, it's an example of the French bands thinking outside the box a little bit and, and value-adding. So uh, I can't wait to see it come here. I mean, Peugeot is not exactly a smash-hit brand in Australia. Australians don't love their French cars, so I can't imagine you're going to see many of them, but uh, you'll certainly snap your neck every time you do see one. Uh, to me, it looks like it should be like it could have gone just pure EV, that shape. It's so futuristic. Mm. that, mm. And I'm kind of – the question I want to ask you guys is that – I reckon Peugeot a little bit behind the eight ball with EVs. Like to me, that that was a brand that should have been on the front foot. 
And, you know, it's like we should be only seeing Peugeot EVs at the moment, given they're based in France and then Paris is the most uh, prolifically busy city in the world. And, and yet, you know, they've got one EV model only out of three. Uh, are, they, are they behind the eight ball? A little bit. Stellantis isn't exactly top of the pops. It's not quite up there with Volkswagen when it comes to electrification. In Europe, there's a lot more choice. Electric 208, they've got a bunch of electric vans, electric 308 coming. So there's plenty coming down the pipeline, um, obviously contingent on production, which at the moment semiconductor shortages make making any EV difficult. Um, but I certainly wouldn't say that looking at the product cadence and rollout of the Stellantis brands, that they're up there with Volkswagen. They've definitely got a little bit of ground to sort of catch up, but there's certainly no orphan when it comes to falling behind the times a little bit. I think more relevantly, uh, Peugeot and Citroen, their EV or lack thereof uh, offering in Australia is quite far behind the times. And that probably reflects where the French brands stand in this particular market. They better mm. watch out for um, BYD champion. <laughs> Everybody should watch out for BYD. 100%. That's a <laughs> well, juggernaut. <laughs> Another car to keep your eye open at uh, Goodwood Jack. Now, this looks pretty impressive, a reborn Rex. I'll have one, please. Yes, me too. If we're taking orders, I think I'll have one too, please, Mandy. How much are we paying you, man? I think that's a hundred grand. Bloody hell. So, yes, um, as you said, Mandy, at Goodwood, we're going to be, uh, you probably would have already seen that there's this really cool reborn Subaru Impreza 22B called the ProDrive P25. And um, so if you're not familiar, ProDrive is the, the motorsport for, uh, firm behind a lot of Subaru's uh, victories in rally. So they're very well versed in creating a very fast rally car. And so it's taking the, the chassis of um, old two-door Impreza uh, sports cars and doing them up kind of like a retro mod that's becoming more popular these days. It's going to be making 25 of them to commemorate the 25-year um, anniversary since it first um, won. I think it won the first car it produced, was, uh, Impreza produced, I'm fairly certain. Don't quote me on that, though. I'm <laughs> um, so as Mike briefly mentioned before when I was putting in my order, it's going to cost more than $800,000, which is insane. But if you think about it, I remember seeing recently um, a record-breaking original Impreza 22B for insane amount of money. So if you think about it, this is just a modern-day version of that with like an insane amount of modern-day equipment and rally car performance to match that. So, $800,000? <laughs> yes. That's, um, that's technically before taxes as well. Oh my God. well. The weird thing about this is it's kind of not a Subaru because, as Jack said, it started life as a Subaru, but this is a completely – like I don't think Subaru has a hell of a lot to do with this. I think this is very much a pro-drive project, um, very much an upcycling project. What's sort of interesting about this, though, is the context that this exists within. So pro-drive, the legendary tuner, has made a modernised version of the most iconic of all the Rexes at a similar time to Subaru's recent announcement that there will no longer be – be any such thing as a WRX STI moving forward. Exactly so right. it's interesting that there's sufficient interest from enthusiasts for retro STIs, but the company that makes them is not going to bother making them anymore, which I find to be a really strange kind of, I'm not sure how they've come to such different ideas of what people want. Mm. Can everyone what, see um, that? What engine is in it, Jack? 
So it has a, a 2.5 litre flat four boxer engine producing more than 300 kilowatts of power and over 600 newton meters of torque, which is very exciting. Wow. So, and it also has a few different uh, performance upgrades. It's got stripped out internals, like everything is new. It's not really, I would call a Subaru anymore. It's just insane. It has a, a Garrett Motorsport turbo and also a, an Akropovich t- exhaust. So it should sound good as well. And um, I'll quickly round off this as well. It looks as Croft is holding up a photo. It can looks. You see that? Yeah, I can. Yes, that's it Colin looks- McRae's triple five at Pro Drive that I visited back in the days because they used to do all Aston's race work as well. And mm. um, I've actually met that guy that uh, owns a Pro Drive a couple of times, and uh, very nice guy, and uh, very very uh, cool shop. And uh, you're mm. right, it's probably closer to that thing, which is probably mm. worth two million bucks. Oh, um, in terms of, you know. Absolutely. It's uh, one of our commenters said it pretty well. It said 800 grand is a lot of money to pretend you're back in 1998 again. <laughs> and um, I reckon that hits the nail on the head. But then again, everything, you know, everything's cyclical, isn't it? And um, mm. the 90s were a golden era of rally. And hopefully we can get back to that place and vehicles like this yeah. become more and more desirable. Because for me, that was a real golden age of performance too. It's a really interesting uh, fact that I want to round off with, uh, Jack, because when I was at Villa Des, there was an, uh, an old Alfred Julia from the oh, yeah. 60s there, and they had redone that as a, as a complete uh, carbon fibre build, mm. and that was also selling for 800 grand. Uh, custom yeah. builds, and they already had 40 orders apparently. Mm-hmm. Um, it's on my Insta if you want to have a look. Uh, yeah, chat. well, this ProDrive uh, P25 is going to be even more exclusive because there's going to be 25 built. So, wow. <laughs> Is it available worldwide, Jack, or just um, in? I'm not 100% certain, but I do imagine it's worldwide. Um, from what I understand, it is UK road registered, but I'm not certain about other uh, kind of markets at this stage. I'd reckon that all be if you can afford eight hundred grand to buy it, you can afford to stick it on a boat and bring it to wherever you are. Yeah. I, I would be incredibly surprised if there was any left as we yeah. speak. Mm. Yep. Yeah. And lastly, the Toyota DPF class action. What is the latest on this one, wow. Jack? So, yes, I'll just give you a bit of context just to start off. Um, so if you're not familiar with this situation, there's currently a law firm running a class action against Toyota because of um, faulty DPFs, which stands for uh, diesel particulate filters. And so with this, there's a there's a potential pool of around 260,000 Hilux, Prado and Fortuna owners that are up for a potential um, potential um, payout of of over $18,000, which is a precedent that was set um, because one owner, um, affected owner, was uh, granted this $18,000, this said $18,000 from a federal court decision. Um, so extrapolating this uh, $18,000 over the, the potential 260,000 owners of this faulty DPF um, from these Toyota vehicles with the diesel, um, it could uh, equal a payout from Toyota of over $2 billion. I'll just go through some of the finer details. I'm going to pass this over to Mike. Yeah, so I've been following this one quite closely. And so there's a couple of things to say here. Um, so basically, yes, we, we all know that there were some dud DPFs in Toyotas, about a quarter of a mill as mentioned. One man took them to federal court, was awarded nearly 20 grand in damages. That set the precedent. The law firm is trying to drum up interest now in that 
quarter of a million buyers. Um, it's important to note, though, that Toyota is appealing this finding. So a lot of this is pending Toyota's appeal. Naturally, Toyota has gone back to the federal court and said, hang on, um, how can you say that having a faulty DPF has devalued the vehicle by about 20%, which is where this compensation figure comes from, that the compensation figure was based around the idea that having a dud DPF took about 7.5% of the value off your car. How can you say that when car prices are at record highs? Moreover, a significant proportion of people never had a DPF issue at all. It was only a minority of people that did. They're the two arguments that Toyota is prosecuting with the federal court. I think the ultimate aim here is to try and settle. I think Toyota is going to have to face some sort of payout to affected buyers, but they're trying to reduce the amount they have to pay by getting that original finding reduced, which will then extrapolate out across the the class action that's happening. Um, I think also it's worth noting that the law firm that's running the class action, the more people that join, the more that the capital fund that's backing the class action will make. So there's obviously an interest in law firms drumming up as much interest as they can. But one thing is for sure and certain, we were hearing for a long time that Toyota was having issues with these diesel particulate filters, not burning off particulates properly. And the rubber has met the road now. It's now at the point where Toyota is actually having to cough up. And it may not have to cough up two to two and a half billion as mooted. In fact, I'd be very surprised if it was that high. But I think it is a fait accompli that Toyota will be paying a ton of money out to at least some affected owners of this. And I wonder what uh, that's going to have impact-wise on Toyota's bulletproof reputation. You know, Toyota trades on being the ultimate in reliability and, you know, it'll go forever. But now that you've got things like Hilux and Prado having serious problems with their mechanicals, I'm wondering what that's going to do for Toyota's reputation moving forward because mm. the damage that that has may make the whatever settlement they reach pale into comparison or in comparison, like, I should say. Like, I do see. you remember when, when Diesel gate happened. Mm. Were, were Volkswagen sales impacted after that as well? Um, not as much as you'd think. I mean, diesel, I think globally diesel has collapsed in passenger vehicles and a lot of that has been put down to Volkswagen giving diesel a bad name. But Volkswagen in and of itself is still the world's second biggest car maker by volume after Toyota and it, to be, to be, you know, in all honesty, hasn't been drastically affected. I think people forgive and forget and move on pretty quick. Um, but Toyota specifically hangs its hat on Hilux being unbreakable and now it's in federal yeah. court because as Hiluxes aren't break, uh, are breaking. So <laughs> clearly, clearly, you know, and, and let's be, let's, I want to caveat these cars weren't conking out on the side of the road necessarily. They were belching out smoke and they were giving warnings on the dash. But nevertheless, that will have an impact. And, and regardless of what the federal court decides to do on settlement, I think reputationally this is really going to hit Toyota where it hurts. Marco, I, I recall that uh, Toyota, uh, sorry, Volkswagen sales didn't really suffer much at all. In fact, mm-hmm. I, I thought golf sales actually went up. Um, believe it or not, um, back in the the, the brink of uh, of that uh, affair, and did I hear the other day that Porsche also have some issues? Um, you know, I thought correlation, that- correlation and causation aren't always aligned, right? So yeah. it, it, there's so many variables here. Volkswagen sales aren't you know strictly linked just to Dieselgate, uh, but it certainly didn't hit them badly. But on the diesel issue that you bring up, Croft, which is not quite the same as what Toyota's going through, but nevertheless, um, Defeat devices have been found in multiple brands and there are numerous brands now being hauled over the coals, particularly in Europe. Um, and we're seeing now, we're living in an age of, you know, when, when OEMs and car manufacturers have such colossal scale, 
when there is a, a stuff up somewhere, the, the ramifications of that stuff up are incrementally higher. So whenever a car brand makes a, makes a boo-boo, that basically is heard around the world. And, and that is why we're hearing about more and more car brands going through situations like this. It's just a consequence of scale. Mm. All right, that brings an end to this week's car news. Thank you, Jack Quick. Thanks, Mandy. So for this next review, we're joined by our managing editor, Paul Marich. G'day, Paul. Hello, mate. You're here to talk about, I reckon, in the top three most important car launches of the the year, it's probably New Ranger and this, the Tesla Model Y. Now, you only had a brief time behind the wheel, but as an outgoing or former Model 3 owner, you're pretty damn well placed to talk about it. What did you reckon? Well, it was like a Model 3, except more practical, (laughs) unsurprisingly. Um, Yeah, so we had the chance to jump behind the wheel of the entry-level rear-wheel drive variant. Uh, Launching in Australia will be the entry-level rear-wheel drive plus also the performance all-wheel drive version. We suspect at some point we will see a long-range all-wheel drive version as well. Um, So Tesla being Tesla, typically I couldn't get any of the information I actually needed about this car from them. So it meant that I wasn't entirely sure how much power or torque it made, wasn't entirely sure how big the battery was. Uh, But we now know uh, that effectively it mirrors the entry-level Model 3 standard range plus, uh, which means they're both built in China and they both use what they call an LFP battery, uh, with which is a lithium um, iron phosphate. There you go. Very good. <laughs> um, so this particular battery doesn't have any nickel inside it. And this battery is different from a typical lithium ion battery as well, because you can actually charge it to 100% and they recommend charging it to 100%. Whereas with a lithium ion battery, they typically ask you to charge it to around 80% regularly mm. and then 100% only if you're doing a long distance drive. Um The other benefit, um, although you don't expect this to happen all that often, if your car catches fire, it's not susceptible to thermal runaway. So if it does catch on fire, it's very easy to put it out, whereas a lithium-ion battery will just burn for days. So I guess the obvious question is, is everybody going to run out and flog their Model 3 and upgrade into the Model Y now? I think when it launched, it was basically you could get it delivered the next month or so. But I think now, as of this week, the wait times are out till about May next year. So it's absolutely blown out. Yeah, so basically Model Y was listed uh, as August early de- earliest delivery, but consequently all of the people that are on a Model 3 waiting list are waiting around a year at the moment. So now Model Y has blown out to about a year wait time. And your question on is everyone going to go get rid of their Model 3s, and the answer is yes, I set up a car sales alert just before Model Y uh, sort of officially went on sale. And it went from around 100 or just under 100 Model 3s being listed to within a week 200 being listed. So (laughs) they had a 100% increase in the amount of listings for Model 3 and that's going to end up driving the price of those down on the second-hand market. And a lot of people who had a Model 3 on order may now just cancel their order and go for a Model Y because it's going to be a much quicker sort of proposition. So, um, yeah, it is an interesting thing. So in terms of the car itself, um, literally as I got 10 metres out of the Tesla dealership, um, I felt the ride. And the ride is absolutely horrendous. So it sits on 20-inch alloy wheels as an option, which is what our test car had. And the ride is so firm that I have a scale of ride firmness in a medium SUV, and it goes from Havel H6, which is 
soft and it's great in and around the city, terrible when you hit a few sort of consecutive bumps on a highway, to the BMW X3M, which is unrelentingly firm constantly. And it is about as close to being a BMW X3M as you'd want to be, uh, which is pretty disappointing in my opinion, given it is an entry-level family SUV. It's, it's unnecessarily firm and I just can't understand why they've gone down that path. I'm really glad you say that because I took it for a quick steer, having not spent a lot of time in it. The first thing I noticed on some of the more corrugated, patchy roads, things like expansion joints and potholes, it was really horrible over them. I certainly hope the entry level with the normal wheels with slightly chubbier tyres does a better job. But you're a new father. You're obviously the sort of person who's probably in the market for an SUV. Um, Does this do enough in terms of practicality over the Model 3 to justify having the SUV tax put on it? Yeah, so let's discount the ride for a second. Um, We found with our Model 3 that it actually had plenty of storage space, so that wasn't a problem. It was more when you're loading a child into it, you have to bend down so far, especially with the Model 3 performance that we had. It was lower than a typical Model 3. So you had to bend all the way down to get the baby in, um, getting, you know, the baby's always moving around as you're trying to do that as well. So it's, it's literally the worst case scenario for your back. And with the Model Y, It is completely different to a Model 3 in terms of uh, getting in and out. So the hit point is much higher. It it is very easy to get into. There is a lot more space inside from a a usability point of view. The boot is better because you have a a large hatch that opens as opposed to the sedan style setup in a Model 3. Uh, You've got equal uh, sort of big storage under the cargo floor in the back and also in the front. So from a space point of view, it is fantastic. And it was a big step up from our Model 3 in terms of convenience. So everything had moved to a USB-C port. They moved uh, the USB-A port for the dash cam and the sentry mode set up to the glove box, which means you can't access it if someone breaks your window. Uh, You have two USB-C ports up front, two at the back. They've integrated two wireless phone chargers up the front. Um, But everything else functionally is the same which is good. Yeah, so very similar to the Model 3. You've got the giant centre touchscreen. You've got absolutely no kind of driver instruments. I mean, on a side note, I can't believe they don't have a head-up display yet. Yeah, that stuff is really frustrating. And, and one of the things that, that's really hard to deal with is Tesla fans who think that Tesla can do no wrong. And when I look at it objectively and having driven all these other cars I just think that it's crazy they still haven't got a driver display or a head-up display. And as much as Tesla fans want to go on about how good the center display is, it's just not, especially for things like blind spot monitoring. Mm-hmm. Every other manufacturer will have a little light on the wing mirror. These guys have nothing. Although they do have something, but it's on the center screen. So to actually check your blind spot, you're taking your eye off the mirror, which is where you should be looking, to the center screen. Then you have to go back to do a head check. It's just the most impractical thing in the world. Then they've integrated a camera, sort of, it's kind of a, a ripoff of what Hyundai and Kia do, where they've got the, the camera that pops up on the screen uh, when you put your indicator on, except they've buried it in the bottom right of the screen. And if you have your hands at the quarter to nine position, if you use the left indicator where it's showing the camera out the left hand side of the car, you can't actually see the screen at all. You've got to remove your hand from the steering wheel to look at the screen in the bottom right of the display to figure out what's in your blind spot. It is just such a bad setup. And primarily it's so bad because as as part of the latest software update for that center screen, they've increased the size of the um, driver visualization. And as a result of that, it's reduced the size of the mapping and also reduced the size of the speedo. So they're trying to cater for this um, 
you know, the, the, the sacred land of full self-driving where they think that you'll only ever be sitting there and never have to do anything. And it's come at the cost of practicality and usability in the center screen. Everything is just far too small now. Mm, that does sound like a very Tesla thing to do. It's kind of the attitude that I seem to perceive from Tesla sometimes is that everything we do is great. And if you think it's wrong, that means you're wrong and not us. But that being said, there are areas in my experience where Tesla is ahead of the pack. I mean, you've driven pretty much every competitor to the Model Y now. What about things like energy use, brake regen, uh, overall punchiness, range, the way that it drove? What were your impressions on that sense? Ride excluded, of course. Yeah. Um, so the way that it drove, I thought was great. So the optional 20 20- Cello wheel comes with a new Michelin Pilot Sport EV tyre. Uh, when we were testing this at the Proving Ground, it was it was bucketing down. And we also had an Audi Q5 Sport Pack Quattro there. And keep in mind, the Tesla is rear-wheel drive. It outperformed the Audi in the wet, hands down. The Audi was just understeering and it really wasn't very engaging. Uh, whereas the Model Y, you know, part of, part of the benefit of that firm ride is that it sits flat through corners and, and you can have a lot of fun with it. Um, in terms of the acceleration, uh, nothing spectacular, zero to 107 seconds. So it's, it's okay. Like it's, it's more than quick enough, but it's nothing spectacular. Problem with EVs is the second you load them up with passengers, that, that acceleration tapers off very quickly. It's also part of the reason why EVs are no good for towing because the, the second you start adding weight to this, like a family and a caravan, it becomes a bit of a slug. So um, that is one of the downsides. But outside of that, the, the car performed and handled great. I love the regen and the fact that it will regen to stop. You don't really ever have to use the brake unless it's an emergency. Um, that, that side of things is great. On efficiency, I wasn't really blown away with that. So we ended up averaging uh, about 17 kilowatt hours per 100 kilometers. Uh, to put that into context, on the same track with the same type of driving in the Kia EV6 GT line, which keep in mind is all-wheel drive, and, and more powerful, we averaged around 16 in that. So it was slightly less efficient than, than a Kia EV6, which I thought was a little disappointing. Um, I think more time with the car will, will possibly sort of benefit that to get sort of used to, to the way that it drives and, and that kind of thing. But um, yeah, efficiency was by no means bad, but not quite as good as its competitors. And on this base model, what is the actual uh, indicated manufacturer claim driving range? So the driving range is 455 kilometres WLTP. Mm-hmm. But if you were to look at our, our average consumption, we ended up getting it down to about 16 after after the sort of time we had with the car. That would bring the real life range to around just under 400 kilometres, which is fine for, for an entry level, um, but... Not, not amazing in my opinion. Um, the other thing that wasn't amazing as well was the charge speed. So um, I tested it on a 350 kilowatt charge, Fox charger, and also a V3 Tesla charger, which is the, the both of the fastest chargers you can get at the moment. And it capped out at around 160 odd kilowatts on the Tesla charger, but immediately then tapered right back down to about 90 kilowatts for, for the average cycle. If you again compare that to an Ionic uh Ionic 5 and, a, and an EV6, they peak at around the same, but then hold an average charge rate of about 110 to 120 kilowatts. So you are filling that smaller battery much faster in an EV6 or an Ionic 5, whereas on the fastest charger possible, it'll take you about 40 minutes to charge the 
Model Y, which I don't think is all that impressive. Mm. And it seems to me that when the Model 3 and, and particularly the Model S came out, they were miles ahead of their competitors, mm. mostly because there really weren't that many EV competitors. But it's quite a different market now. And yes, there are supply, supply constraints across the board, but there's a lot more choice in the EV world than there was when previous Teslas came out. Does the Model Y hype notwithstanding and brand recognition notwithstanding still strike you as the best affordable-ish electric SUV out there? And has the gap narrowed to the competitor set? I think it's all on price. So the whole reason I've bought one, I, I originally wanted the long range, but it wasn't available. So I thought I'll get the base one and then we can flip it for a long range when it comes out. It's so cheap. So obviously the price went up three grand two days after it went on sale and, and they are honouring the original price for all the original um, sort of uh, reservation holders. Um, but even at the new price of under $80,000 drive away, even if it wasn't an EV, it'd still be good. It'd still be good value for money. The fact that it's an EV and has so many features uh, makes it incredible value for money. Now, yes, the others are good value for money as well. But I find with EV six and Ionic five, they fail at the practicality test. And when it is a ground up EV platform, if you can't get practicality and packaging right then I think you need to have another go at it, especially when it comes to boot room, front storage space. If, you're, if you have the, the luxury of, of an EV platform, you should be doing better at it. Um, so yeah, from a value point of view, I think it's great. But if you have a look at something like an iX3, which is 115,000 plus on-roads, it's effectively the same car in terms of size and, and the way that it drives, but it is $30,000, $40,000 more expensive. So I think the Model Y is great from a, a pricing point of view. If the Model Y was 10 or 15 grand more expensive, you probably wouldn't consider it. Mm. But at, at a, as a value proposition, it's, it's what wins it at the moment. And you've just said then you've, you've put your money down and put your money where your mouth is and actually bought one. Now, as you mentioned, the long range isn't here yet and hopefully it will be at some point, but there is the performance. It sits at the top of the tree with obviously, as the name would suggest, more performance. Was there ever a thought that you'd splash the cash and go for that or do you not think it offers enough for the extra outlay? Yeah, look, if uh, with the money side of things, that wasn't so much of a concern because it was roughly about the price that we paid for our uh, Model 3. Because that's a funny thing. Everyone thinks, oh, they've put the price up. But what actually happened with Model 3 is when we bought our performance, the price went down by about five, between five and 10 grand. And then it's now back up to where it was. So the price of a Model Y performance would have been about the same, but it's more the ride that I was concerned about. I thought the Model 3 performance ride was fairly firm and I didn't want to go to anything that was going to be as firm for a family car. So I thought, well, the long range or, or the entry level won't be as firm. They've turned out to be pretty damn firm. So it makes me think that the performance is going to be like neck jarring in terms of firmness. And the funny thing is Tesla can easily fix this with adaptive damping. Like, it would solve the issue immediately. Maybe you should tweet Elon and see what he reckons. <laughs> Worth a shot. Well, anyway, mate, congratulations on your purchase. Uh, look forward to yours arriving shortly. And uh, if you haven't gone and uh, watched the review and read the review, please head to the YouTube channel and the site. Pauline, thanks very much. Thank you, mate. The 2022 Porsche Macan, the more basic model or more affordable it, model, I suppose we could say. Yeah, it, yeah, Mandy, it's not it's not the most affordable. Um, yeah, that starts with the four-pot, you know, just over 90 grand plus on roads. But this is uh, – Porsche have had a couple of price – well, they have a, a major price rise every year and they had their, their last one recently, I think in April, and um, went up quite a bit 
actually. But, you know, what hasn't? I, I did the numbers on all the uh, rivals of the Macan and they've all gone up pretty much. And Macan is actually one of the cheapest still, believe it or not, in its class. And the car I had was the Macan S, which is the V6, twin turbo V6. Now, it used to be a single turbo, so it's a much better vehicle. And that's about 113 grand. But it jumped, you know, 7,400 bucks um, from last year's. So, so this is effectively the same car um, that came out in 2021. Uh, so they've, they haven't done anything to it. This is still, believe it or not, a first-generation Macan. It's quite wow. staggering, isn't it? 2014. It still um, looks so good, though. They, they haven't renewed it. Um, you know, and I guess if, if it ain't broke, you know, uh, don't fix it um, mm. because that's what the Macan's all about. It still looks cool. Um there's nothing, and I do mean nothing, that drives like a Porsche Macan as far as a midsize, and it's a small midsize SUV. Although it's not small in length, it's actually the second long. It's actually the second longest, uh, slightly shorter than the BMW X3, which is the largest in the class. But um, it, for some reason, it's not the best space packaging. It's got the smallest boot in its class. Not that that worries me or someone like me that has no kids at home. It's absolutely perfect size for those that, you know, aren't ferrying around kids but want to ferry around boards and bikes, etc. But, you know, this thing is quick. It's 4.6, and I guarantee it's quicker than that if you put a V-Box on it. Because I gave it the boot a couple of times in sport mode, and it fucking goes. Like, it just leaps. And, it, you know, the, because it's all-wheel drive, of course, like all um, – all uh, Porsche uh, SUVs, all Macans, it really just gets out of the blocks without a without a millimeter of of, of squiggle on the on the on the tires. It's got a really good footprint, um, but you know, I just love it because it drives. You know, I keep wanting to say this is the Porsche of SUVs, but of course it is <laughs> a Porsche, and it drives like the badge intended. And I think that's the thing. And and where they really leap ahead of their rivals. And still ahead of their rivals, I'll get you to in a minute, Mike, is the fact of ride and handling balance is absolutely peerless. Um, Mike. Well, it's I love that you touched on that. So uh, a quick aside, I did the original global launch of this car back in 2014 in, um, in, in Leipzig and, and Stuttgart. And that's now eight years ago, and I've come on somewhat in my career since then. But it's amazing to me that that generation of models still persists today. I mean, that's Mitsubishi ASX numbers, isn't it? Like when it comes to yeah. longevity of yeah. life cycle. Yeah. But what's really amazing to me is I remember when I drove that on Porsche's test track, which is an incredible Frankenstein's monster of, you know, all the different bits of different famous tracks around the world sort wow. of smooched into one super track. But, what, but I remember doing that thinking this car drives at the time like barely any hot hatch I've ever driven, let alone an SUV. It's yeah. so much better to drive than everything else. Yeah. What's disappointing, though, is in 2022, and I've also driven a Macan again recently, Croft, like yourself, is it's still miles ahead of every other SUV for dynamic. Yeah. I would have thought by now that another competitor might have got its shit together enough to match it in the twisties, but nobody has. It's staggering, Mike. It, but it's – I've got to tell you, I've got to go it, – it, it's not the fastest – um, and, of course, it's not the roomiest, but the way they're able to absorb bump, and I'm, I'm going to my local, uh, going down to the office in Manly from where I live, and I'm turning corners without braking. You don't need to brake. The car just is telling you you don't need to brake. 
just put your foot into it and turn the corner and, and, and the Macan will do whatever you want it to do. It's like that. And yet you can go over bumps, mid-corner bumps I love because this thing is controllable, millimetres of correction over a bump to get it just perfectly positioned on the road through an apex of a corner. Even when you're just driving to work, you're having fun in this vehicle. There's nothing like it. However, there are some caveats. Um, the room is one of them. Not a lot of uh, rear seat leg rooms, particularly for tall people. They're going to struggle big time. And really, there's only room for two people back there. You don't want you don't want three people in the back seat. There's quite a large transmission hump down there as well. Um, the uh, the tech, although uh, it works very well, it's nowhere near what BMW are doing and what they're going to bring to three series and, and all their vehicles uh, shortly. Um, Porsche will need to really step it up on that. Their sales reflect that. In Macan, it, I noticed uh, May sales were quite down compared to its rivals. Um, and I think that could be a reflection of BMW with their brand new screens coming and um, and it's really impressive. And Mercedes-Benz has always been the king of bling when it comes to uh, in-car tech and, and, and interior. And they've stepped it up again. Um, as I'm looking at JWO over in Germany driving some new stuff and the stuff looks amazing to me. And um, so I, I think Porsche have always been a little bit behind on the tech. I mean, they've still got three binnacles. That doesn't worry me at all. Um, because that's Porsche, right? Um, so I think it might affect some people that are looking for the latest and greatest, but for, for really people that enjoy driving and really need an SUV and they can't, they can't manage a 911 or a Cayman, whatever, this is the closest you're going to get to a 911 in, a, in, in an SUV. If I can say that, and and you know that's what this car is about, and I don't think 113 grand is is a lot of money in this class because it, it, if you read my review, and it'll probably go hopefully live in a week uh, or so. Um, I talk about the other vehicles and the prices, and it's I think it's the second cheapest in the class, um, and and you know with that level of engineering, um, don't 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 get me wrong, BMW is catching up. Uh, they're doing some amazing things now. They've rectified their – they're always a very stiff riding vehicle, their performance SUVs. They've got that managed. They're starting to manage that very well. So the people are catching Porsche um, slowly and surely, but for now they are still the ben- – the Macan is still the benchmark of the, the medium SUV class above 70 grand. What I would also add is you're correct when you say that the competitors are catching up, but we know that the next generation Porsche Macan, which is expected to be revealed either late this year or next year and is going to come quite shortly in the grand scheme of things, is only going to be made as an electric car. They're going to, going to update the petrol and they're going to, that's going to soldier on for a bit longer, yeah. but it's not going to be an all-new model. The all-new one's only going to be electric. 100%. And Porsche has shown with the Taycan that when it comes to the dynamics of an electric vehicle, and of course there's so much more complexity in making an EV drive or because it's really heavy, mm. The, the, the Taycan is miles ahead of any other EV when it comes to handling, and I suspect that the next-generation Macan EV will put all the other electric SUVs in the shade just like the original ICE one did. I'd be very surprised if it didn't. Yeah, I, I mean, any, any other company that wants to get the right handling balance right, you just need to go and poach anyone in the engineering team or chassis development team at Porsche, and you'll get the thing sorted, trust me, because mm-hmm. those guys are freaking magicians. 
Groff, which car expert rating did you give it? Gave it an 8.5. I noticed Scully had given the GDS an 8.3. I think the um, the, the Macan S works better for me uh, because of the fact that it's priced accordingly. The GDS is 138 plus on roads and this is 113. So for me, it's still the very much the sweet spot. You get the V6 twin turbo, you get plenty of oomph and uh, it, it goes a lot better than the four pot, to be honest. Well, keep your eye on Car Expert for that review coming up soon. There goes another Car Expert podcast. Uh, what cars can we look forward to in the garage next week, Moko? Um, I'm not going to pretend that we've got the most exciting cars in the garage next week, but we do have some very consumer-focused vehicles that are relevant to our audience, which is, of course, car buyers. Uh, in Melbourne, we've got a Hilux SR5, um, one of the most supply-constrained vehicles you can imagine, um, Mazda MX-30 E35 Astina. The EV, the little uh, Mazda EV that nobody seems to be buying, unfortunately, for Mazda. Um, uh, the new Audi S3 Sportback and updated Hyundai Santa Fe up in Sydney. We've got a VW T-Cross revisit and a Maserati Levante, one of the more base versions that Croft, I believe, you're driving. And up in Brizzy, we've got a 4x2 version of the Mitsubishi Pajero Sport and the new Honda HRV. E colon HEVL, which I believe is Honda Pilots for hybrid. I drove the non-hybrid Honda HRV recently and I wasn't all that impressed with it. So I certainly hope the hybrid model is better. Um, at the moment, I also should flag that we've got a couple of great cars. We've got an i30N sedan, a Genesis GV80, a Jeep Grand Cherokee L Summit Reserve. That's the brand new flagship Jeep SUV and um, the new WRX TS from Subaru. So no shortage of great metal coming through our garages across the eastern seaboard despite a massive lack of stock plaguing the industry. Mm. And we've still got some launches happening as well. We actually do. We went through a lull during the COVID period of nearly no in-person launches for obvious reasons, but they're back now, not quite to the same level as they were. But James Wong um, is currently over in France with Mercedes-Benz, having a whale of a time, no doubt. Um, Will has just driven the updated Volkswagen Tiguan Allspace. Um, and this coming week, we've got the brand new Kia Nero, the new electric and hybrid SUV from Kia. Scott's heading over to Adelaide to check that out. I'm uh, going up to Canberra to drive the new Mercedes-Benz EQS 53, which is the new S-Class essentially. There's already an S-Class, but this is the electric, much more space-age looking version. So there is some launch activity starting to percolate. And then into next month, we've got an absolute uh, blockbuster uh, number of launches that we'll talk about in due time as well. And Loco, the Persian prince, I believe, was in a uh, Porsche GTS. Uh, Mate, I don't know what he's up to. He runs the the, the launch just suddenly appeared on the calendar for him. Um, Yeah, he snapped it up real quick, didn't he? Yeah, it was. And he was driving the GTS manual home, which would, would have to be one of my favourite <laughs> cars, so dying to get into it. Um, I wonder if we'll see a review from him. Um, Mate, the, uh, the benefit of being, uh, of being a founder of the business is you can pull rank and do whatever bloody launch you like, and Al Bors has definitely uh, taken that opportunity up. <laughs> <laughs> As always, if you have any feedback for us, please email podcast at carexpert.com.au. Tony Crawford and Mike Costello, thank you. Thanks a lot, Mandy. As always, uh, can't wait for the next one. Thanks, guys. Yeah.